In the city of Hebron on Israel's west bank, there is a stone wall on which is written an inscription, actually a poem marking the death of a child. She was just out on a fine March day with her mom. She was just sitting there, only 10 months old, in her stroller, but she was killed, murdered actually, in the sort of tit-for-tat fighting that has claimed the lives of so many children on so many streets in so many cities and so many other places in so many parts of the world for so very, very long. A writer for the Washington Post called the inscription on that wall, and I quote, an elegy to that child's pinchable cheeks, her sweet smile, her kerchiefed cuteness, and to the urgent necessity of revenge. And the inscription on the wall literally reads as follows, we will take revenge. We will scream for revenge in body and spirit and await the coming of the Messiah. In every single age, there come these moments when we tire, when people tire of waiting for the Messiah. There comes a moment in every culture, many times, many such moments, where people tire of waiting for somebody else to come and to sort things out and to make them right finally. There comes a moment when they decide that they need to exercise for themselves the vengeance that is so obviously evil's due. And we understand that, I think. I hope in some part of you, you do understand that, as I understand that, because we see the things that go on in this world of ours. We see the unnecessary death of 10-year-old children. We see the shooting of unarmed teenagers. We hear about the raping and the trafficking of innocents, the beheading or the blowing up of people who were simply standing in line trying to come home. We hear about the swindling of the elderly, of, of people who grow fatter while other people starve, of those who purposely work, work to hook other people on drugs. We hear of those who feather their nests with public funds, of those who pleasure themselves with the video of somebody's daughter, of those who betray their spouse, who abuse children, who bury themselves in a world of trivia and entertainment when there are so many needs and such wickedness rampant in the land. This is evil, this stuff. It's evil and it makes us mad. It makes us very mad. And we're mad a lot these days. We are mad a lot these days. A recent article in Esquire magazine sums it up like this in bold capital letters. We the people are peeved <laughs> to be charitable. The body politic today is burning up. And the anger that courses through our headlines and our news feeds about injustices 
and inequality, about marginalization and disenfranchisement, about what they are doing to us shows no sign of abating. Studies show that half of all Americans are angrier today than they were just a year ago. Two-thirds say that they read or hear something in the news that makes them angry at least once a day. And 88% say they are very angry at least once a week. And the impulse, understandably, when we're angry, is to just stick it to them, whoever they happen to be. And there are a lot of them. Let's make the rich pay. Let's kick the freeloaders out. Let's fire the politicians. Let's kill the lawyers. Let's fry the criminals. Let's punish Wall Street. Let's nuke the terrorists. Let's nail those evildoers. Let's crucify them. Those evildoers. For we will take revenge. We will scream for revenge in body and in spirit and await the coming of the Messiah. It's a poem we know well. So how are we meant to think and act in the face of all that is so evil about our world? I mean, how as followers of Jesus are we called to act in the face of these unspeakable things? Well, I will not try and sugarcoat it just because we're sitting here in a church building. I would say, first of all, we ought to hate evil. We are meant to hate evil, that which robs human life and dignity, that which denies the purposes of a loving God for the flourishing of his creation, we are meant to hate evil. If you do not feel some righteous anger in the face of wrongdoing, then you're not in tune with God. You have not awoken to the heartbeat of God if you do not feel such things. God's word says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Secondly, there must be accountability for wrongdoing. There has to be accountability for wrongdoing or chaos grows and injustice reigns and acts of terror must not be allowed to become simply so familiar that we shrug at them as the new normal in our world. Evil must be held accountable. As Edmund Burke famously observed, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And to be a follower of Jesus Christ is never to be one who simply does nothing. Furthermore, evil deserves judgment. It certainly deserves judgment. And we'll finally receive it in toto. The Bible is clear about that, for it is written, the scriptures say, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. I will set things right. There will be justice, says the Lord. Before we dash off, like the writer of the poem on that Hebron wall, however, it is urgently important, I believe, to do some reflection some personal preparation so that when we do act in the pursuit of righteousness, 
we do so in a way that actually lessens the presence and power of evil rather than unwittingly increasing it. And this is why I think it's so essential to stand at the foot of this cross today. Because it is the essential course in preparation for our battle with evil. For example, I think it is helpful to remember that we are notoriously good at spotting evil in others and notoriously bad at seeing evil in ourselves. And I will confess, that describes me too. The spouse who is enraged by his partner's terrible performance would be shocked to know what other people really think it might be like to be married to him. He would be amazed at how others see it. Or the parent who is outraged by her children's bad behavior is often amazingly blind to her own bad behavior. Or, or Islam seems pure in all that it does until you see how it treats the vulnerable sometimes. Or America is righteous in all she does until you live outside the country for a long season. Or, or certain Christians are puzzled as to why everybody else doesn't want to be exactly like them and can't even see it, what it is about them that is turning others away. Do we understand why Jesus spoke so often about hypocrisy? Do we understand why Jesus spoke to the religious of his day about superficial righteousness and called people to be so very careful when they judge? Not to stop discerning, but to be so careful before they finally condemn. It's also important, I think, to remember that as human societies, we have frequently oversteered when it comes to dispensing justice. As individuals, we do this sometimes. We oversteer in the dispensing of justice. Who's ever struck a child with a force they, that made them shudder at the horror of what came out of them? But as societies, too, we have sometimes oversteered in our pursuit of justice. The just reparations demanded of Germany after uh, World War I, it was the act to end all wars, as you know, strangely, unpredictably created something of the conditions that gave rise to the fascism that led to the next world war. And the justice that got meted out to all of the elite, the intelligentsia, the, the bourgeoisie of Russia and China in the 20th century, unpredictably spawned an era of economic fruitlessness and mass starvation. And the three strikes and your outlaw seemed so incredibly wise, so just when it was put into place, but has left us with the largest prison population in the world and not a safer society or a healthier society? How many times in history have we as human beings employed a heavy hand, a very heavy hand to stop evil only to discover to our surprise that the hand itself had been co-opted in an unintentional way and turned into Satan's own tool? Revenge and revolution often seems like a very good plan for overcoming evil. 
it, it really seems to be the thing to do at many points in history. It's why so many people of various parties vote for it. It's why we march for it. It's why moderate voices quickly get trampled or left behind in angry times. And sometimes our angry initiatives do yield improvements, do advance the cause of justice. But as many times, one form of tyranny simply gets replaced by another form of tyranny. And as a general rule, the teaching of the New Testament is that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth approach to overcoming evil is a strategy that works best for a family, society, or world that is okay with everyone becoming increasingly blind and toothless. As the inscription on the wall says, we can scream for revenge in body and spirit and await the coming of the Messiah, and many people do, but that is not the way that salvation comes in the end. It's not the full picture. By Good Friday, it was very clear to all of the enlightened people that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. <laughs> no way he was the Messiah. The Pharisees had known this for a very long time. They were the academic, the capital elites of their day, and Jesus had had the temerity to criticize them. And the very fact that he was so popular with all of those uneducated, unattractive people who lived out there in the rural areas in the middle of the country made it doubly certain that Jesus was an instrument of ignorance or evil itself. It was obvious to the zealots that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. When he was offered the chance to overthrow the Romans by force, when he was given the opportunity by the people to help make Israel great again, he rejected it. He walked away from it. And with Israel in the state of crisis it was in first, the first century, Christ's whole low-energy approach was obviously evil of another kind. Than the Romans. And so Judas decided he had to drop his endorsement of him. I can't stay with Jesus. It was certainly apparent to the Romans that Jesus was not the Messiah. Where was his power base? By the end, he only had the tiniest little circle of delegates left. His poll numbers were so low <laughs> that Pilate wondered why the producers were even bringing him in for an interview with him. Why are you doing this? And, and so they crucified him. The politicians, the liberals, the conservatives, the powers that be, the priests, all of them, they crucified him. Well, actually, first they tortured him. They tortured him hard. They tortured him. And when he was so physically ravaged that he struggled even to stand, they made him carry his own instrument of execution, through the streets and up a hill while throngs of people jeered at him for the loser he so obviously was. 
And they marched him up that hill, and they pushed him down on a rude spar of wood, and they drove iron spikes through his bones and his flesh as if he was an insect. And then they swung his cross up, and it thudded down into its post hole, and they left him there to die. And they left him there to die. They judged him, they convicted him, they punished him for one pure reason, because Jesus was obviously so evil. So evil. As Mary watched her baby die, do you suppose that she recalled holding him in her arms and looking at those pinchable cheeks, that very sweet smile, that kerchiefed cuteness he'd had as a baby. And as he hung from that cross, as he was gasping in agony for air and gazing through tears at a world that was so sin-sick and so broken that it could so regularly mistake good for evil and so commonly do such evil in pursuit of the good, what do you suppose Jesus felt? What did he feel? And as he looked down at that crowd that was mocking him, that was morbidly enjoying his painful death, do you suppose Jesus felt like I think you and I might, like so many angry people in our world do feel right now, did he feel the urgent necessity of revenge? If anybody was entitled to feel the urgent necessity of revenge, it was him there in that moment. But this is what came from his lips. Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they do. In his magnificent study of genocide and terror and personal injustice, Yale professor Miroslav Volf draws on his own experience of the Yugoslav wars and his heritage as a Christian theologian to reflect on the meaning of the cross itself. Wolf writes, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated, and the second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. I think of the story of, of Ryan Cushing, a, a 
19-year-old young man who went out drinking with his buddies one night and they got really out of control and they went into a grocery store and they robbed the grocery store and they took some items with them and they raced off down the highway and Ryan got it into his uh, deluded mind at that moment that it would be fun to take the uh, frozen turkey that they had taken with them and hurl it out of the window into oncoming traffic and he did that and the turkey crashed through the window of Victoria Ruvalo and obliterated her face. And at Ryan Cushing's sentencing, Victoria Ruvalo came and spoke. And this is what she said. There is no room for vengeance in my life And I do not believe a long, hard prison term would do you, me, or society any good, Ryan. And I pray that this is the turning point in your life for good. And Cushing, who wept, who expressed such profound remorse for his actions, for his horrible, evil actions, who was looking at a 25-year sentence minimum, Victoria's testimony changed the sentence to to a much shorter term and turned around this wayward man's life. I I think of that church in Charleston. Um, We all saw it on the news, whose members extended forgiveness to the man who ravaged their congregation with hate and death. Do we think that racism in America grew or diminished because of those Christians' refusal to return evil? Did it grow or did it diminish? I think of those Amish people in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, who lost their children to an evil gunman's deeds and then reached out to embrace his family with love. Do you think respect for the Amish tradition, the word Amish, a joke in the minds of many, do you think respect for that tradition and for the health of that community went up or went down because of their refusal to return evil for evil. More personally, much more personally, think of all the sins of commission or omission in your life or in my life. Think of all the evidences of of evil and ego and deception and distortion that are on your and my eternal rap sheet. (laughs) And we don't even know it. We don't know how long it is because we know not what we do before a holy God. Does it matter to you and me that Jesus took the full weight of all of our evil upon himself on that cross. And then, rather than screaming for revenge, said, Father, forgive them. Let them go. Let them flourish. Let's keep working with them. The great Scots Presbyterian James Stewart once marveled at the uncommon strategy of Jesus as he sought to overcome evil. And I want to wind us to a close with this remark. Stewart says the very triumphs of his foes he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to serve his ends, not theirs. 
They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They, they gave him a cross, not guessing he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment, they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were planting imperishably in the hearts of men and women the very name that they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated, and they did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down, who had found them. For he did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil, right, Stuart. He conquered through it. Beloved, this is why the cross of Christ still towers or the wrecks of time. This is why. Because it is here that we get to see evil at its hateful worst. I mean, it's, there's, there isn't a worst than the kind of purity, the kind of goodness that was ravaged there. And we get to see that and name it that evil. It is here that we see an accounting for sin. We see the wages of sin, which is death, the judgment exacted, but it is also here that we see the horror of evil overcome by the splendor of God's redeeming love. We hear here the good news that we are forgiven. And we gain here, maybe by just this much more, the kind of heart that we need to turn from the revenge that is wrecking our world to the amazing grace that overcomes evil. It's here that we develop the kind of heart that when we have to act, forcibly acts in the way that God himself would act, that Jesus himself would act in our position. It is here at the cross that that kind of heart can be found by you and me, further formed in you and me to the glory of God's name and for the hope of our broken world. Would you please pray with me? God, we ache. We ache and yearn and long for a world where every child is safe, where war is no more, where evil is vanquished. It is easy for us to see where force is required to accomplish that end. It is harder sometimes to see in the midst of our anger, our angry righteousness, where the way of love and the way of self-sacrifice is needed even more. So show us the way, Lord. Show us the way, because we don't know how to find it easily ourselves. Our urgent necessity tonight is to receive your grace at this cross and this table and to be reformed 
and transformed by it. For the sake of your redeeming work, we pray. Amen.